second of two lectures on natural law. Uh, we're going to continue going through that same bundle of notes. Um, if there's time, which there should be, because I don't think we'll need all the time to go through that bundle, I'll give a, a few brief comments on your papers just generally among all of you because there were a couple confused thoughts on conscience that a number of you were articulating. So, Okay, natural law. So, wonderful, all the stuff's still there on the board. Um, so, who can explain to me what this is? So, first of all, uh, Hunter, why are nature, reason, and law related at all? Because they're all from God. Right, which is a really obvious thing to say, but um, they all come from the same source, and therefore these aren't rival things, they aren't divergent things, they, they have a unity. So, a rational God, therefore reason is from him, nature is from the creator, made according to reason, and law, this is our part the phrase, the natural law, is our participation in our rational intellect in the eternal law that is in the mind of God. Okay, so remind us, what is law? What is reason? What is nature? What is law? So the nat I know the natural law is an image of God's eternal law, and in a way it's written on our hearts uh, what to do, what is good and just. Okay, that's a much bigger answer than I was looking for even, but it's all very true. But really simply, distinguishing law from reason from nature, what do we mean when we use the word law? Commands, thou shalt statements. Right, so very simply, it's a command. In contrast, reason, we mean, we use the word reason and we mean, Hunter? Oh, um, things that are fitting, like what ought to be done, like and our ability to understand what ought to be done. Okay. Uh, anything to distinguish reason from? One of the points I was making is by reason here we're meaning not the Bible, not what the saints tell us, not what tradition tells us. So reason in this sense isn't just what you can think, because obviously as Christians we're always thinking using the Bible and the saints and so forth. Strictly speaking, natural law reason is that bit of reasoning that even without the Bible, even without tradition, even without knowing the Lord Jesus, what you could know. And the key thing in all this package is actually there's an awful lot you can know even without knowing um, the Lord Jesus and knowing the Bible. Simply, what do we mean by nature, Michael? Uh, what a thing is. What a thing is. What a thing is in this context, most especially what you are. You are a human being. You have been made a certain type of thing to find fulfillment in a certain type of behavior. So what is the type of behavior of all the different activities of the human person? How do those different activities find fulfillment? How do they each have a different end, a different purpose, a different telos? So the nature of an activity, what is it? Well, reason can tell us what its nature is, what it's aiming for, what fulfills it. And therefore, there would be correspondingly a law commanding you to do that. A law, reason can look at your nature and know you must do the thing that fulfills, completes, satisfies your nature. You were not made for destruction. You are not made to destroy yourself. You are not made to pervert your nature. You are made to bring it to fulfillment. So each of the activities of the human person, you can look at and say, what fulfills this? What authentically fulfills this? And the law from God, that's what he's commanding you to do. Now, one word I didn't write up here, but I'm going to add today in a different color, experience. 
So when reason is doing all its thinking, the thing it thinks about is experience. And not just my personal experience, but human experience. So yes, I obviously would be drawing on my own experience, but in the sense of what's true of human beings in terms of what fulfills me, what I should be aiming for, what is the goal of my life, my goal of this particular activity. So we draw on human experience in all kinds of things. Back to my donuts. It's not just my experience of the donuts I think about in how to eat, but I just think about what donuts do for human beings in general. So it's not a self-absorbed experience reflection, but a broader what is human experience. And that human experience, reason, deduces things about my nature and therefore what God is commanding me to do. Well, that's kind of a, a nutshell summary of our last lecture. Okay, to repeat then what we looked at last time, reason can figure out all of the commands of the moral law. Reason can figure out all of the Ten Commandments. So why does St. Thomas say, what's his answer? Why then did God give us the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai? If you're able to figure it all out, you've been made a rational being, why did he give it to us on Mount Sinai? This is your question. Because uh, it takes a long time. Not a lot of people figure out and besetting sins uh, prevent us from, from getting to those truths that reason can tell us. Okay. Um, to make it easy. So it's possible to know it all, but it's not easy to know it all. So to make it easy, immediate, clear, um, accessible to everybody, and not mixed up with erroneous ideas, God gives supernatural revelation, which is just confirming what he's already written on your heart, to use that phrase from Romans. The natural law written on your heart is already there, but quoting Irenaeus, as we read from the Catechism, he put it there at the beginning, he reminded us of it on Mount Sinai. Okay. What's the significance of apples having been left on my desk here? Theologically. Honor. Hmm? Honor. And why honor? Yep. So Thomas gives this example, and I, we went through it in a bit of detail. Um, why is religion natural to man? The notion that it should, it's just part of your nature to offer worship to God. St. Thomas says, well, we just look at all human beings in all of history, and the subject always pays honor to the Lord the inferior to the superior. Uh, and therefore we should show honor to God, who is the superior. And what kind of being are you? Well, you should show honor according to the type of being you are. You're not an angel, you're bodily, you're sensible. So he notes throughout human history, we see humans making sensible offerings, crops, animal sacrifices, um, sensible offerings because they are sensible beings that they offer to the Creator. So we can see all human history, human experience shows us this is what we do and it accords with our nature. Um, it's natural to show honor to God. What was the thing about the pink flamingos? 
I said this is an, was an example of a false natural law argument that you do sometimes see people throw out there. Jake? Two animals, both flamingos were male, right? Yeah. Anything else? Is that true? It, it was that they were trying to make the case that homosexuality is a natural thing. The other examples brought up were uh, gay penguins stealing eggs and animals doing homosexual activity. Uh, so they're saying, therefore, since it exists in the animal kingdom, it's natural. Uh, but I think part of the point you're bringing up was that you really can't justify that because there's a lot of things that animals would do that we can say that's pretty immoral, and especially because there seems to be something different about being human, like that because we made for life, like there's a sense of commitment and relationship to animals we can't do. Right. So the basic point, being human is being different from being an animal. So the natural law doesn't mean doing what the animals do. It means looking at human nature and human experience not natural in the sense of animals. And so you will get people throw out things, well, you Catholics believe in natural law, so, but they don't grasp what we mean by natural. We're talking about human nature. We're not talking about imitating the animals. And it is true, there are things we see in the animal kingdom that actually do show us something about ourselves. When you see a mother sacrificing itself for her children in the animal kingdom, that does actually speak to us about something in our humanity as well. But we wouldn't, we shouldn't be saying natural law, oh, we imitate the animals. That's not what we mean. Okay, now I talked about the different stages of the natural law in terms of how we know it, that some things everybody knows, some things only a few people know. Who can talk me through that again? Well, um, the first and common principle are things that, that everybody knows, like do good, do unto others as you would like to be done unto you, and vice versa, don't do to others as you don't like to be done unto okay. you. Okay, very good. So there's some things everybody knows what we call the first precepts, the common precepts. Everybody knows this. It's not possible not to know it. You might not be articulate in phrasing and constructing it as an axiom, but everybody knows this. Do good, avoid evil. Everybody knows this. Uh, secondary uh, precept, which are drawn from first principles. And does everybody know those? I mean, we can figure them out with time. So does everybody know them? No. no. And that's the, the key point. So it's not difficult to know them. When you list the Ten Commandments, pretty much everybody looks at those and says, yeah, stealing's a bad thing. Pretty much everybody looks at them and says, yeah, you should honor your father and mother. But not everybody does know these things. It does take a bit of thinking. It's possible for that to be blotted out of the human heart. Were you going to add something else? Okay, no, so you're on to one, the, the, one of the ways in which we can fail to know. So these secondary precepts are fairly easy for people to figure out, but not everybody does figure them out. What are, St. Thomas indicates, three ways 
that those can be failed to be known. The example you're giving is your own sin, that your own habit of sin, St. Thomas uses the phrase, clouds your intellect. You're capable of knowing, but you gradually lose the ability to know something that you are capable of knowing. So your own habit of sin stops you. Can you remember two other examples of how you can, someone can fail to know the truth? John Paul? Culture. Okay, which I was trying to indicate, I think those are really two separate things. So evil persuasions and cultural norms. So he talks about corrupt um, customs. So the society around you will have certain practices that everybody does this. Everybody does this, so it must be okay. And so your ability to see right and wrong can be obscured because everyone you're looking at is doing what's wrong and thinking it's okay. So your personal sin can cause you to lose the ability to see sin. The sin of others can cause you to lose the ability to see that it's a sin. But the other category is evil persuasions use Thomas's phrase, that people can just corrupt your thinking with clever arguments. Um, you know, tragically, a lot of what's said about abortion this way, very clever arguments, very complex whatevers, um, but it all adds up to, as Thomas would put it, evil persuasion, that it's making something that on one level is really clear-cut but you put some really fancy arguments on top of it and it doesn't seem clear-cut anymore so these two stages things everybody knows and is impossible not to know some things that it's pretty easy to know the Ten Commandments but it's possible not to know and then there are other things that are much more detailed and it takes more thinking, or it might take good raising in a family background. So those of you doing ethics and Aristotle, um, among the things he'll talk about are you know, family upbringing, um, the good raising by the state, um, to be raised in a healthy culture, a healthy nation, makes it easy to grasp the truth. To be raised by good, wise parents who train you in virtue from a young age, who when you look to their example, you just spontaneously see mom and dad are honest with each other, mom and dad are hardworking, mom and dad are giving to each other. All kinds of things then just, it's easy to see this is right and this is wrong. Um, but conversely, that can all work in reverse. You're raised in a bad culture, or a, ba a culture with many corruptions, or you're raised in a culture with a, a family where just two dysfunctional parents at war with each other all the time, um, and things that should be obvious aren't obvious. Um, so it's possible to know the truth possible with your reason and think about human experience to know what the rational God has made human nature to be fulfilled and therefore to realize what he commands. But it's also possible to not know it. Okay, page five of the notes. So we were actually on to page six, but let's just briefly remember what we said on page five. Um, so section one, natural law is natural because all humans are naturally capable of knowing it. So I made the comparison, a fish is naturally able to swim, a bird is naturally able to fly. A bird can have a wounded wing and isn't that individual able to fly, but it's still kind of in its nature. A human is naturally able to know the natural law, even if an individual can have that wounded, that, that capacity not 
quite functioning. And a big point I say that all of the ethical laws of Christianity are capable of being known by non-Christians. There isn't a single ethical law that we hold to that a non-Christian isn't capable of knowing. Um, contraception, IVF, um, not just general things like honoring your father and mother, all of the things, yes, we know with a certain clarity, but everyone is capable of figuring these things out. One of the implications for that is therefore, we can say this should be the law of the land. Everyone is able to figure this out. We're not just imposing a Christian law on you. This is a human law, a rational law. So when our good Bible friends, evangelicals and such, say, you know, abortion should be illegal in this country because the Bible says so, that isn't our argument. We would say it should be the law of the land, a law of all humans, because all humans have the same human nature. All humans are able to know this, not just because you are a Christian, not just because this is a Christian country. It's a human country. Humans are able to know this. And therefore it should be the law of the land. Links with my second phrasing of it. Why is it natural? The natural law is natural because it accords with our nature. What is the law that God puts on you? It's not some random thing he slaps on top of you. Rather, it flows out of the very thing you are, the very thing he has made you to be. Therefore, it's natural to you. It accords with your nature. What fulfills me? living the law he has given me. And we can put that in reverse. How do I know what is the law he has given me? Those practices that authentically fulfill me. The 10 donuts do not authentically fulfill me. It doesn't take much reason to figure that out. But I don't need the Bible to know that 10 donuts isn't good for me. Yeah, reason can figure it out. Okay, let's see. Page six, three. Natural law is natural. Why? Why this word natural? because we can use a posteriori reasoning from facts of nature to moral laws. Now this is getting a bit more philosophical here. Um, so there's this phrase, you've done David Hume in philosophy yet? Have you done his, you've done some of him, have you done his ethics? I'm pretty sure you will at some stage before finishing your, your college degree. David Hume has this weird thing where he says you can't go from an is to an ought, which is actually what we're saying here we do all the time. So I look at what eating is and I figure out how I ought to eat healthily. Yeah, so what does eating do for me as a human being? It gives me nourishment. It gives me social interaction when I eat meals with others. It also gives me pleasure. There's a whole package, what is eating? I look at what eating is and I figure out what is a good way to eat. I move from what it is to what I ought to do. What is a donut, therefore how many donuts ought I to eat? The action of, of eating as the nature of it, what it is, I can figure out 
um, its function, which as I said is nourishment, is social in meals, includes pleasure, and I can figure out how I ought to behave with respect to eating. You're writing that down because that isn't an example in the notes, but I think it's an important, useful example. Yeah? So that's a, poster a posteriori. So that's going from is to I. Yeah. A priori is the opposite? A priori is just staying within reason, the principles of logic all by themselves, as Kant would have it, stripped of any human experience. That's a priori. And you can construct arguments from a purely abstract structure. A posteriori is actually when we use experience as our reasoning. And that is when we look at Aristotle, when we look at St. Thomas, actually what they're doing all the time. So Aristotle starts philosophical analyses and he says, well, what do people say about such and such? What do people do? How do they behave? What behavior works well? What behavior works badly? That's all a posteriori reasoning. That's going from looking at experience, looking at what is, and figuring out what is a proper, healthy, is, a good is, and realizing what you ought therefore to do. Okay, let's stretch that example um, slightly differently. Um, what is the purpose of study? We're going to go from an is to an ought here. What is study? Because what I'm wanting us to do here is to think any bit of human activity, I can think what it is and figure out how I ought to behave. Acquiring knowledge. Acquiring knowledge. Good. Um, and can we, what can we deduce very simply about how you ought to behave? Um, it's a natural human desire to know Okay. So you're a rational being, therefore you should acquire knowledge. Is to an ought. Um, let's think what students are. What is a student? Just approaching this slightly differently. Someone whose occupation at the time is to learn. Is to learn. Students often think their occupation is to complete the degree. Their occupation is to get the qualification. Their occupation is to get the grade. That's when your whole process of activity has gone back to front. So asking the question, what is the activity? What am I as a student? Fairly immediately structures how I ought to behave. Similarly, what is a seminarian? When we think about what a seminarian is, it's not just about checking the boxes, jumping through the hoops, getting formation to vote me through for yet another year. Um, it's about becoming suitable to be a priest. That's what being a seminarian is, forming myself to be worthy to be a priest. then what I ought to do flows pretty easily out of what I am. Is leads to ought. Let's get a bit more complicated. Thinking about sex as an is, and therefore what is the ought of how somebody ought to behave. In terms of its purpose, its end, its telos, what 
is sex. I was going to say, is it only about procreation? No, so you said it's also about union. So it's got union, it's got procreation, um, it's got pleasure. So what can we fairly easily deduce some things about what ought to be the case in terms of behavior that relates to that? So if, if procreation is part of its, the structure of its meaning, then it needs to be about a man and a woman. And the unitive element, I feel like. Must be monogamous, union. So if it's about union, the monogamy flows pretty easily. And arguing that convincingly takes a bit more fleshing out of the argument, but that it should be one man, one woman for life flows out of what is sex about, as a physical process, it somehow bonds two people together. As a physical process, it has an inherent dynamism towards children. That is the art of the behavior should match up with that. So lots of um, recent scientific studies will point out how within the brain, and within the hormones flowing through the person, a man and a woman having sexual intercourse actually experience at a hormonal level a bonding between them. So we can look at the is and see that this activity of sex bonds them. So how they do that should correspond with a deeper meaning of, of what's going on there. Um, so what I'm saying, the, the unitive thing, the significant unitive thing, isn't just, well, the Bible tells you this. Actually, we can see scientifically, but we can also see in all of human history, to use St. Thomas's terminology, in all cultures and all time, we see this as a consistent pattern. And though we find exceptions, where well, we do find cultures where promiscuity and a lack of commitment is normative, these exceptions are noticeable as being exceptions to the norm. And that we also see within those cultures a disintegration of society happening with that rather than a building up of the common good. Okay, you can see the beginning of an argumentation style there, that's the kind of thing I'm working out in much more detail in the sexual morality course. Um, but the notion is, we look at is and we figure out how one ought to behave. And this means pastorally for you as a pastor, when you are telling people what the law is, you are also telling them what leads to their fulfillment, what they are. It's not some random difficult thing you are telling people. And when you fail to tell people the way they should be living, you're failing to offer them the path to life, not just in heaven, but even in this world. Okay, I'm preaching now rather than teaching. So, so, Page six, um, top of the page there, valid is ought arguments. So I say one, and these are the ex examples we looked at already. Man is naturally inferior to God, thus he is morally obliged to worship God. Two, man is naturally social, thus he is morally obliged to love. Now that's a very different argument, but you can see how that you could unpack that argument fairly easily. Some invalid arguments though, invalid is all arguments. One, if man was meant to fly, he'd have been born with wings. Therefore you shouldn't use these wicked airplanes. Yeah, that is not a structure that follows. Two, the natural tendency of stupid people to harm themselves imply they should all be put out of their misery. Yeah. So. 
there are many ways you can get a weird argument out of this structure if you don't apply it properly. Three, nothing could be less natural than a plastic hip joint. Thus hip operations are contrary to the natural law. Now a British philosopher, Mary Warnock, who uh, criticized the Catholic Church on all kinds of things, she said that as an argument mocking the Catholic position, saying, well, you say you, you should only do things that are natural. Well, a plastic hip joint isn't natural. Um, well, that's not what we mean by natural. So just as we don't mean imitating the animals, natural means according to what is, what fulfills something, your hip, when you repair a hip with an artificial hip joint, you are restoring it to its function. You are not damaging its function, not replacing its function, you are restoring what is the case because it's faulty at some level. Can you also make the argument that like a cane, it'd be like the same thing as a cane? Right, right. That you shouldn't use an umbrella because God intends it to rain now. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, moving along. Page seven. How many of you can see on page seven? Um, this was a page we did, I think this was our second lecture together. Uh, reason and the natural revelation of God's moral law. So I distinguish in that lecture two forms of revelation, natural and supernatural. So supernatural revelation is God's revelation by supernatural means, like on Mount Sinai, he gives the Ten Commandments to Moses. Whereas natural revelation is God's revelation by natural means. For example, the beauty and order of the cosmos revealing that he exists. Do you remember this? I know I only did it briefly, but... Down to the section, the moral law, correspondingly two ways to know the moral law supernatural revelation, Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, supernatural revelation, um, what can be known by reason, what can be known naturally, the natural law. So what's on that page we've been talking about, we mentioned before, but just to reiterate that with this different angle, natural revelation, supernatural. The natural law is natural revelation. You can figure it out even without the Bible. Okay, let's move on to page eight. So normally I don't get onto the appendices so you'll see in my notes in general when I give them to you, there are certain sections that are called, written as an appendix. If you're interested, you can follow those up. Those won't be in the exams. Um, but um, appendix one, uh, and this kind of relates to the red here, eternal law, natural law. I say natural law is our participation in the eternal law of God. I, I say reason is not autonomous. Um, and then rephrasing this a few different ways. Saying reason deduces moral truths is not the same thing as saying reason creates these moral truths. The truths are out there already. You're just figuring out what they are. Reason discovers, reason does not invent. So the natural law that you are having knowing in your head is already in God as the eternal law. As you figure it out, you are discovering, not creating the law. You've all done, have you done Immanuel Kant? Some of you. Immanuel Kant was very big on reason being autonomous, subject to nobody. Um, 
and we can imagine he'd have been thinking not subject to the church and the pope um, we would be saying actually these things go hand in hand it's the same moral truth it's the same moral law um, it's not a moral law independent of God Okay, I then quote, um, if you can see on the footnote, uh, a moral theologian called Russell Hittinger, who wrote many clever things, um, but in bold there, a nice fancy, fancy bit of phrasing there. Josh, can you read this to us? In scholastic parlance. In scholastic parlance, the human reason is a measuring measure, mensura mensurans, only insofar as it is first a measured measure. Okay, isn't it nice when they throw in a bit of Latin there just to make it sound clever? We were discussing this around the campfire last night, saying it's the really best kind of books are those when they use a Latin phrase but don't even tell you what it means. Yeah. So if you don't, if you're not able to know what it means, then stupid you for even reading the book. Yeah. Um, There is a relevance here in the sense that it does mean something precise and technical. Um, scholastic parlance, the, the way the scholastics speak. Human reason is a measuring measure. What does that mean? If we imagine it, if we compare it to my ruler here, my ruler measures things. This book is seven and a half inches wide. I just measured it. This is able to measure that because it was first measured. So this was constructed according to a measure and therefore it's able to measure something else. My reason can measure good moral activity only in as much as it has received proper reasoning from an ultimate source whether it's naturally or supernaturally. So reason is a measuring measure only in as much as it is first a measured measure, like the ruler. It has to first be accurately created to then be able to measure something else. I was going to say, how do you know that that ruler specifically has been accurately created? Because I trust Walmart. <laughs> No, it's a good question. So you get a cheap ruler, and it may not have been made very well. Um, yeah, right. Um, so, so that it's possible to have an inaccurate measure. Um, but in all of this, what we're meaning when we're saying that, and Thomas uses this phrase, he likes this phrase, measure, um, for activity, um, it has to first receive an accurate measure to then be able to apply it to other things, your reason, your intellect. All of which is a way of saying natural law is not autonomous of God. What it means is a share in the reason of God. The last bullet point on that section, the magisterium's authority over interpreting the natural law. So the magisterium, this is the church. Now what on earth does the church have to do with the philosophy department? Because yeah, we've said all of this natural law is what the philosophy department can figure out about what's right and wrong. Well, what's the church got to do with the philosophy department if philosophy's just reason by itself? Well, here I'm quoting Humanae Vitae, where the church is described as the guardian and interpreter of the natural law. So say, although the natural law is known by reason, not by supernatural revelation, the authority to interpret and define the natural law is held by the magisterium because the natural law is contained within the deposit of faith. Now, you remember me using this phrase, this is from the letter of Jude, the deposit of faith, the revelation, all the truth that the Lord Jesus comes and in the fullness of time he gives everything revealed 
the deposit of faith like a deposit put into the bank and that the church all down the centuries has that one deposit that we're always drawing from never being emptied always the same though we grow in our understanding with it to some extent thus we call the refer to the development of doctrine but it's always the same faith the same deposit within that deposit of supernatural revelation is also natural revelation these aren't in opposition so in that sense the natural is within the supernatural and thus even though you're able to know the natural without the church the church is able to define this practice does or doesn't accord with the natural law did you have a question no okay now page nine here um, this actually relates to a question you asked last lecture whether you remember you asked it or not I don't know so appendix two some common problems in is ought natural law discussions in terms of what can how can this get confusing how can it go wrong so problem one I say reasoning about your nature involves knowing your end yes we all remember our metaphysics nature involves end but I say which end does this mean your natural end or your supernatural end you are all still philosophers you do not know about the whole world of theology down the corridor um, but so you might talk about a natural end in the philosophy department but do you know that you have a supernatural end you, you you don't you are made for God and God is supernatural you are made with a spiritual soul you are a supernatural being but that is beyond the philosophy department and we're saying in all of this we're looking at what the philosophy department can figure out and you kind of at the very level of your being are on one level beyond the philosophy department because you have this supernatural end do you see the issue I'm flagging up here so natural law is about knowing your nature thus knowing your end but your end is beyond the philosophy department your end is in God so what's the solution I say human reason can discover our natural end but cannot discover our supernatural end yet we have a supernatural end so how can natural reason discover the manner in which we must act to pursue this supernatural end well I say a partial answer unaided reason can discover God's existence and discover some of our consequent duties towards him so as we touched on before the third commandment you can figure out there is a God you can figure out you must worship him you can figure out you must worship him in a sensible manner you can figure out you must worship him on a regular basis and we noted that the French Revolution's attempt to have a 10-day week failed communist similarly re-attempts failed um, but the precise knowledge that you must worship him on the day he rose from the dead that the Sunday is the Lord's day that you must worship him with the mechanism of religion he gave you namely the mass you can't know that without supernatural revelation so natural law can tell you an awful lot of the package but the fullness of it for implementation there are some things you can't do without <clears throat> supernatural revelation so this is kind of connected a little bit off topic um so is following the natural law enough for salvation if you can't know more than that that's a big question so father bernie will deal with that <laughs> um okay you want a better answer than that um so um, the Second Vatican Council says 
someone who follows the light of truth and as much as it has been available to them will be held accountable for as much as they follow it. Um, so if you live on a Polynesian island where the missionaries have never come to, you will not be blamed for not attending Sunday Mass. Um, if, however, you grow up in Catholic Italy where there's a church on every corner and Sunday Mass is available five times every morning, um, you will be held accountable. So if you've if you followed the light in as much as it is being made available to you, that's what you'll be judged according to, which kind of relates to your papers on invincible and invincible ignorance. If you're ignorant of the law, but it's not your fault, then you're not going to be blamed for it. Now, the mechanism by which grace comes to you, if you don't know the Lord Jesus, that is a problem in theology that you will look at with Father Bernie. Um, There was a, a chap called Karl Rahner in the 20th century who said many weird and wonderful things. Among them, he had a theory of what he called anonymous Christians, whereby he said, well, all, all those people out there, they're Christians, they just don't know it. Uh, they're anonymous Christians. Um, uh, Father Peter Fagan uh, referred to that in a little jab in one of his, his last homily. And I told him afterwards, I said, the men here are so well formed, they don't even know that who you're poking at in that homily. Um, so there, there are dodgy ways of trying to explain that, and then there are authentic ways. But the problem of how grace comes to you, so we say only one mediator, Jesus Christ, no salvation except in the name of Jesus. And yet we also say, someone who doesn't know Jesus but follows the light in as much as they have seen it can be saved. Somehow that person is not saved bypassing Jesus, but somehow through Jesus and even through his church. There's no grace that comes except through Jesus and except through his church. Somehow his invisible church, even when it's not his visible one. But if I know the church and I know his sacraments and I still choose not to go, then I'm going to be held accountable for, for not following it. Okay, problem two. Nature. So again, what is the word nature? I say, and this was Brother Adam's question. Or no, maybe it was Jake's question. It was a very intelligent question. Um, I think, I think actually it was Jake now. Um, the question, what is humanity's natural state? So I put three options here. Adam's, what we call preternatural state. So before the fall, Adam existed in perfection. Adam existed without his passions at war with his soul. I with the passions in harmony with the whole of his body and soul. Is that what we mean when we talk about nature? Or do we mean fallen humanity's state with the passions in a state of concupiscence, the body at war with the spirit? Or do we mean redeemed humanity's state? Humanity now exists, I said, in this state of potency to fulfillment in Christ. But this is the problem how can this be known apart from supernatural revelation? And if supernatural revelation is needed, is this still natural law? What do we mean when we talk about human nature? We see this as a bit problematic. Um, the solution I quote is um, from Aristotle. Um, and I love this. So this is Aristotle from the Nicomachean Ethics. He's giving us, I think, a, a working solution. Um, there's a beauty here. So in terms of this is enough to work with, even if we don't know the exact details 
at a technical level. So the solution to one and two is basically remember that not all answers need to be the same specificity. Michael, can you read this quote from St. Aristotle for us here? Did you say St. Aristotle? <laughs> I, I, I just baptized him, yeah. So go on, go on, go on. <laughs> we do not look for the same degree of exactness in all areas, but the degree that accords with the given subject matter. That the carpenter restricts himself to what helps his work. That the geometer inquires into what or what sort of thing the right angle is, since he studies the truth. So what degree of exactness of answer do you need? What is a right angle? Well, a carpenter knows what a right angle is. He's using it all the time. He's got his set square. He doesn't need the precision of answer that the ge geometrician has. So he truly knows a right angle, knows a right angle in a way that he can use it in action without knowing the precision that geometry gives. For moral action, there are all kinds of answers where we don't need a specificity in the two problems I've highlighted there. We just need an answer that is accurate enough for human behavior. Does that work as a solution? It also, there are many things in your theology where you will come across problems that are complex, do have issues, to answer yourself, do I know the answer well enough to be a Christian? Do I know the answer well enough to be able to live and preach this? And not to get overly distracted by a precision of answer that in this world you will not get. I think this is a big thing to carry through through all your, your, not just your theological studies, but your priesthood too. Would it be accurate to compare it to our use of the number pi? Like, it's an infinite thing, so we're never going to be able to grasp it entirely. Certainly, fields of study require, like, you're trying to find what, whatever the quote-unquote last minute is, and they have hundreds of thousands, but most people will never have to use more than 0.14. Yeah, I think that's a very good example. So pi is real. But I don't need to know all those digits in order for it to be real and in order for me to use it. Okay, briefly, problem three and four there, um, which I've alluded to already in different ways. Reason, what is reason? For example, I say Immanuel Kant falsely claimed that all reasoning must be a priori, purified of experience and tradition. Whereas I say St. Thomas reasoned on the basis of what experience teaches us. So, but in reality, I say all reasoning occurs within an intellectual tradition. Um, so that reason and tradition, in practice, you can't really separate. So as the philosopher Alistair MacIntyre makes this point in a book called Whose Justice, Which Rationality. Um, all the time you're thinking, reasoning, doing philosophy, you're doing it imbued with other ideas. But that's not really a problem. Um, last problem for there. The term natural, I say, is mistakenly used equivocally. What do I mean by equivocally? Hunter, what does equivocal mean? Anyone? I'm sorry. Do you know what to use a word equivocally means? Um, so you're using it in two different ways in two different senses, or in two different parts of an argument with two different senses. Very good. I shouldn't have put you on the spot with that one. Um, often, whether it's around the meal table here or in a parish, people will be having an argument about something and they're using the same word but in very different meanings. That's what we mean by equivocal. So when we have lots of discussions about nature and natural and natural law, a lot of those arguments are at cross purposes because people are using the same word natural but meaning it very differently. Um, okay. Um, so. Starfleet will have to wait.
Um, the same word natural has very different meanings in different contexts, but many non-Catholic authors fail to note proper distinctions in this regard. For example, as I've already quoted, Mary Warnock glibly thinks that she is critiquing Catholic natural law ethics when she comments on hip replacements and claims that nothing could be less natural than a plastic hip joint, yet hip joint surgery, hip replacement surgery is seldom objected to on the grounds that it is contrary to nature. And I note, Warnock shares the modern disregard for metaphysics. She does not use any concept of nature as indicating the type of a thing and thus how it should function and be used. Okay, so that's just a couple red flags in discussions here, but I've said some common problems in natural law discussions. Um, comments, thoughts, yeah. So I think especially in today's culture, uh, I mean, the idea of natural law is just ignored. And so I think us bringing it up, There's a lot of people, if you ask them what the purpose was the nature of sex, they'll say reproduction and unity. They might agree to it, but they'll say, who cares? It's my body. I can do whatever I want to do. So I feel like we have to help them realize who they are as a child of God, what their you know sexual difference is for, why they were created male and female. I mean, like there's just so much theology that I think is required before they'll even consider accepting the natural law. That's just true. Um, I think that at a practical level, we don't need to call it the natural law. We might know we're doing natural law reasoning, but what we're actually talking about with people is reason. This is a, just a sensible way for you to behave, that you're not going to be happy if you don't behave this way. Um, that what type of being are you? What's the activity you're talking about? What's a reasonable, sensible way to do this? Um, we know that this is natural law reasoning. To use the word natural law for most people would just be a distraction. So I think I'm agreeing, but still trying to say we can be doing this even though we're not calling it natural law when we're talking with others. Um, that's an answer we'll look at in the sexual morality course. But in brief, I would point to um, various statistical surveys that indicate that the divorce rate among Catholics using contraception is very high. Uh, the divorce rate among Catholics using contraception is about 50%, which is the same as the divorce rate in secular society, if they're contracepting. Couples that use natural family planning, whether they're Catholic or not, have a divorce rate of between 2 and 4%. This indicates that there is, at the level of the activity, whether they believe in God or not, just a different way of relating to each other that's going to help them in the long term. And so this is a point I make whenever I'm preparing couples for marriage. Um, right now you want to be married, right now you want to make that marriage work. Ask yourself, what isn't not, is not just what's the convenient thing in terms of contraception, but what is a pattern of behavior that's going to build us together for the long term? That'd be briefly my answer. John Paul? No, you're right. You you're say right. That we should, that our natural law argument is like fitting, most fitting there. Yeah, I think so. so. So to say that to be avoiding children all the time is your primary goal doesn't seem to result in happy couples. 
there's, there's just a whole, the, the question you're bringing, starting with here, isn't a question when we look at society that ends up with happy people. And we're now at a phase in the, in the West where we can look at two generations of contracepting people with, within that couples and families that aren't contracepting. And I think we can point to young, vibrant, happy Catholic families that are visibly happier living a countercultural lifestyle. Are we going to go over the conscience? I'm pretty sure. I'm yeah, okay. So uh, can we wrap up natural law here? Yep, okay, good.